Welcome to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast, a podcast to help you recognize when your brain is treating others as enemies to be defeated instead of as people to be loved. With neuropsychologist Jim Wilder and Brigadier General Ray Woolridge, we'll discover the ways that Enemy Mode sabotages our best intentions and we'll find pathways together to refriend the people around us. Let's get to work. Well, this is Jim Wilder, and I get to introduce uh, Jesse. Oh, boy, I should have figured out how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> it's it's Crookshank. It's um, someone who goes to jail and what happens to them in jail. Crookshank. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I've known you for some time, and I, I know you as holding a master's degree from Harvard in mind-brain education and a published academic author. You serve on multiple boards internationally, currently live in Colorado, uh, like that outdoor uh, lifestyle. And um, you can follow her on Twitter, Twitter or Instagram at Your Brain by Jess. And, uh, you know, that seems to be the area of your life that you uh, really have expanded. You've started applying brain science to real life situations long before that was popular or uh, even academically interesting. So um, tell us a little bit about what is a wide range of things that you've applied brain science to? Um, yeah, I, you know, my, my kind of catchphrase, I guess, if you could have one, I have a catchphrase and that's that it's not rocket surgery, but it is brain science because humans are involved in all of the human problems we have, it might be beneficial to know how humans work and how humans change. So I study humans because it's the most interesting thing in the cosmos to me. Yeah, and here you uh, go about teaching people, you know, the way the brain learns, and that's the thing I like about your work particularly. And so we've been talking together a little bit about the science of hate, and how people learn to hate and how they learn to stop hating and being in enemy mode. And what would you say you've um, found to be crucial in the area of uh, how to deal with hate and why the brain gets into it? Yeah, I think the one of the best places to start for that is just how personal that is to me in that I grew up in an abusive home. My brother is um, bipolar and was very violent growing up. Mm. And um, that's a very overwhelming situation for any family, let alone for a sure. family trying to live off of a high school teacher's salary in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. And when my brother got diagnosed at 18, he got medicated and became a completely different person. And the interesting thing was that he was different, but I wasn't. And then he went to the same college, the same university as me. Um, same town of 35,000. And I had to learn how to have a relationship on the other side of that and deal with hate in my own self because I hated what he did to me and what he did to our family. And yet mm -hmm. now he's different. And so he deserves a second chance. And yeah, so I had to walk through that in my own life. And the question of how do you repair, how do you, how do you move from being a person who's self-protective to a person who's known as for love? and openness and radical transparency and trust. Well, we talk so. a lot in the book uh, uh, about discovering our best self and that we can be much less than our best self. It sounds like your brother was quite late in discovering his best self 
Uh, but then it was much more painful for you to try to discover that for your own uh, growth and development. Yeah. And he had to, I was watching him be brave and courageous enough to discover his best self and grow and change. And I was so challenged by his perseverance in that, that how could I not try to do that as well? Right. If he could change that radically, maybe I needed to as well. So, um, and then I applied that in the wilderness of how, of, um, when I was a wilderness guide, because all of that stuff brings out (laughs) ourselves and how Mm -hmm. do we discover our best self in difficult, trying, challenging, um, you know, death, you know, defying circumstances as well. So I like to see people who they really are and help them grow and change from that, from that place. So there you had a very clear example with your uh, brother that the brain affects how, uh, how well he can actually discover who he is. And then in the wilderness, you see how people's fears and threats and uh, difficult circumstances also obscure um, you know, who your best self is. And, and you've been working at helping people, uh, including yourself, find your way back. So um, how does the brain learn uh, to be our best self when we have not been acting that way? Well, a couple things that I've discovered. Um, one is that the best place to do that work is not in our most rested version of ourselves. When we are our best self, we sometimes don't actually know how we're doing that. Mm-hmm. But if we can be in challenging circumstances, reveal the underlying thought patterns, belief systems, motivations, and biases, and do the work there, which means you have to have a community and a group willing enough to, to, to be with you when you're being your grossest self. Um, and that's a whole thing. But if we can do that, then we can uh, rewire in deal with the things that are underlying our gross self and that helps us be our best self more often. And I think that takes people around you who can handle that, who love you well, um, who believe in that best self even exists. And um, when we can do that for one another, we can kind of rewire from the inside out, which is much easier than the top down, you know, just kind of gurring yourself into your best self. That that usually doesn't work in a take because it takes too much effort and your brain doesn't like effort. Oh yes, right. We've uh, we developed the easiest way to get places and in, uh, in the brain and of course it's easy to get into enemy mode with a little practice. Uh but you're making a very strong point for what we call attachment, the importance of having uh a, a firmly connected uh, relationship with someone who will still be there when we're we're struggling when we're having a hard time um in fact we've uh suggested in uh, in this book that a rescue attachment that's somebody who stays with us and i really like your term grosses self um uh, you know that someone who will stay with us then uh helps us um pull back to who we are uh, how have you found that to work um you know i one of the things that I believe is that it takes another person to help us know what we almost know. And we almost know our best self, right? We, we can see a little bit of who we are when we're shine, when we shine and when we're bright and when we're brilliant and the amazing person um, that I think that we all can be, you need somebody to hold that memory of you when you're your gross self. 
Because if they only know that, then that's all they believe. They'll believe that you can be and they'll reinforce and remind you of that. So when I, I was just applying this different neuroscience to, to practice in the wilderness of how to, um, how to help people form memories, which are emotionally encoded. How do you help them form memories that are positive and encoded in the way that helps them have access to their best self? And it takes another person to help you do that. You can't do that by yourself um, because that emotionality is a relational dynamic. So you need people to help you have positive emotions while you're doing hard things. Not, mm -hmm. not without any negative affect, but just hey, I can overcome this. That's how you encode resilience. And we were doing that in the wilderness because we wanted everybody to survive. Yes, yes. <laughs> and not be overwhelmed by the circumstances. Yes, we refer to that as state-dependent learning. So in the actual state that you need to use it is where you need to practice and learn it. And you need somebody outside of yourself that will remember that there's more to you than what you know in that particular state, it sounds like what you're saying. And this yeah. works in the wilderness. It works in emotionally upsetting memories. Uh, you seem to have uh, made lots of applications. To businesses, to corporate turnarounds, to bias in the workplace. I mean, it, other people create the zone of proximal development, which is the space we're growing into. Mm -hmm. And so you can create that in any kind of environment. And in fact, you need to, I think, intentionally create that so people can grow. Because if you're not, then they're going to be learning the wrong lesson. Well, I really appreciate that. And at, uh, this might be a good time to ask you the question, what do you think of the state of the field of neuropsychology and learning in terms of these kind of applications? Uh, it seems to me like it's sort of at the beginning of figuring things out and trying to apply them as opposed to have, having taken it very far. Um, yeah, it's when I was in um, grad school, you know, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person and that wasn't seen as a legitimate way of knowing at the college that, or the university where I was. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't allowed to bring our whole self to that because they were still discussing whether or not, that mattered. Actually, that wasn't even a question. They had determined it hadn't. Um, that's changed now. But um, when you're looking at research and applying it to practice, and you know, I was doing that for about a decade before I went to grad school, that was still something they were arguing about. And I found that in grad school, most of the researchers were asking lame questions, if I can be a little, a little <laughs> frank. They were asking questions that. no one was asking and weren't that helpful because they weren't, they didn't value the practitioner's experience. And so the practitioners had better, more useful questions. And so the cutting edge research in the last decade has been around these better questions, our social emotions, not just anger or violence, but things that come out of the insula, like compassion for virtue and the things that inspire us and motivate us from the inside out. Um, I think we asked questions about things that we could control for too long instead of asking curious discovery questions about the mystery and maybe even the mystical nature of the human mind. Um, and I think that has changed in the last 10 years. We're asking better questions, but there's still so much to be discovered because the brain is the most complex thing in the universe. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's wonder. So if we can approach it with wonder, I think we'll do better 
in our research. I think, I think that's that's quite delightful. And and again, the controllability has usually eliminated the relational aspect from the research. And so things that are tightly uh, tied to relationships are really hard to pull into a lab. Uh, you know, you can't just uh, into, induce a state of hate or enemy mode too easily uh, unless you know who a relationships are important and personal history uh, is involved and that's usually been left out of the lab. So uh, I really like your curiosity, the spiritual aspect of what does this mean in terms of us as communities and the full depth of, of being human beings. And, and then you bring in uh, how do we actually do this when we're in our gross self and we're trying to find our best self. So uh, uh, I really am encouraged to have you as part of this, you know, this storytelling, this investigation of the world, this finding out um, how to be people when uh, we're pretty confused at the moment ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've lost our humanity a little bit, but I think we can find it. It's kind of, it's kind of encoded. I think it can be regained. Yeah, I think we were sort of designed for that, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah, I think we were designed to enjoy one another. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed this time with you. Thank you for being part of this interview and this podcast. And um, again, where is it that people can best uh, locate and follow you on the web? Yeah, yourbrainbyjess.com is my website, my Instagram, my Twitter handle. Um, so just out there trying to help help people be amazing. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. was such a fascinating conversation um, between you, Jim, and with Jesse Crookshank. Um, I love just kind of so many different topics, what she's talking about of state-dependent learning, which is something we have talked about before and how real growth happens in community and kind of the effects of hatred on the human brain and how we interact with others. And and that's kind of where I wanted to start um, this conversation with you, Jim. What what is the science of hatred? How does how does hatred affect the brain? How does it look in the brain? And how does it inform escaping enemy mode? Well, we have to start out by saying it's one of the most poorly researched parts of the brain, in spite mm -hmm. of it being one of the huge uh, effects on all of human history. And yeah. the reason for that is uh, it's really hard to induce in a lab. Uh, you know, you just can't come in and use the same conditions for everybody and say, okay, now just hate a while and let me scan yeah. your brain and see what's going on. So uh, the the kind of uh, conditions that pass hate from one generation to the next are also hard to produce. Okay, now how, let's uh, have half of you train your children to hate and the other half, you know, we're going to have you teach them to yeah. be kind and we'll compare your brains. And so uh, human beings uh, are very, very hard to, to study in that particular regard. Mm -hmm. But there is this cold anger system within the brain that's clearly a part of hate. And cold anger is this part that energizes you um, to, uh, to basically hunt. So mm. it 
it says says uh, you're the prey and I'm the predator, and it energizes that prey and predator system. So as long as I don't let you get humanized, because the brain really blocks us from uh, doing bad things to fellow humans. So as long as I can mm-hmm. keep you from being human and keep you as my prey with a good reason to, to win, uh, this cold energy system will use everything. It'll observe you very carefully, and it'll use every weakness you have to try to make me win. And mm. and hate is that attitude that keeps us from humanizing the other person. And like I say, it's, it's very poorly researched. Uh, and... Mm-hmm. Even our research in instruments are, are not well equipped to to do that sort of thing because it's a it's a subtle, deep running kind of system, not using a lot of energy. And most of our scans are looking for something that's burning a whole lot of energy right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And and cold anger doesn't burn a lot of energy. It it's a stealth move. It'll run for hours, weeks, days, months. You know, three years from now, the person who has cold hate for you can still be, you know, tracking you uh, without having burned up much energy. Mm. So uh, that's why we don't we know so little about it. And that makes me think of, I think, growing up around hatred or in an environment that is abusive. How does that affect a person? Um, like, how how does being surrounded in by an abusive environment shape the way that a person grows and interacts with the world? Well, there's a whole lot of complicated things that uh, are part of growing up in an abusive environment. One is you get used to people who don't see you as fully human. You just really can't be abusive to somebody who Mm. you view as, this is a person I really am attached to and I want to share life with. And abusive environments uh, are very low on compassion. So compassion is something that says, I'm going to share your pain. Uh, Mm. And uh, in abuse, you create pain in the other person so you get your own way. And and if you shared it, you know, it would shut down your abuse. So, in fact, when we were dealing many years ago with uh, uh, how do you deal with domestic violence, one of the most effective ways to reduce the domestic violence was to make the perpetrator, male or female, share as much as possible of the pain they had created. And so mm. this lack of compassion is probably the most active uh, part of the whole system that we can we can actually work with because people can learn to have more compassion to share the pain of others. Uh, not everyone wants to do the training, but we can intervene at that level. And then yeah. the third thing is uh, our amygdalas get very reactive when we've been traumatized. And so mm-hmm. we greatly overreact to whatever stimulus comes our way. And it's very easy to get stupid by overreacting to something that didn't, you know, you didn't have to take the whole keg of dynamite to blow up that little, you know, flea that came along of an annoyance mm-hmm. between us. And so, that overreactive nervous system that doesn't quiet itself is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a key. The strongest predictor of mental health for a lifetime is the ability to self-quiet. So mm-hmm. that's what you also don't get in abusive environments. It's not like, oh, we'll just settle in and we'll quiet together and we'll have a, a you know, a nice uh, restful time. That's not mm-hmm. how you produce abuse. So the lack of quieting is a huge contributor. Yeah. 
And something Jesse talked about, which we've had as a topic in this podcast quite a bit, is state-dependent learning. And I thought it was interesting how she talked about the need for community and people around you to help you when you're in that intense state of enemy mode, people around you to kind of call you back to yourself, to remind you of who you are. And Ray, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that, of what's, what is the role of community in, in really growing and really changing? What, what's, why do we need people to help us? Well, we need models. And we need attachment. And and when we're attached to people who are modeling behavior that we admire, we, we can become that person. Mm-hmm. Now, th- their behavior still may be uh, negative or, or wrong because uh, depending on their culture, it could, could be something that, uh, y- you know, y- it's hard to understand. But we need models and we need attachments. And, and that's really important after the apoptotic period around age 13 when the group identity becomes more important than your individual. The survival of the group is more important than your survival as an individual person. And that's how uh, many of us uh, became soldiers. And, and airmen and Marines, we wanted to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And then we got to basic training and we had a, a, a drill sergeant yelling in our faces and inducing all kinds of amygdala override in us. Yeah. And we had to learn to dial down the fear response and to do things under pressure. Now, we, not, we not only were, you know, civilians right off the bus from Kansas or where, whatever, we joined a group and we were going through it in a cohort and yeah. they started saying to us, you're here to be a soldier and soldiers do things that are hard and they do it together and they look out for their buddies. So they were imparting to us pressure, but also identity. And we had yeah. attachment together and we learned though, when we're afraid, we can still do a lot. And so for me, learning to be a soldier, uh, that resilience came from learning I could do a lot more than I thought I could, but oftentimes I had to ignore the fear. It sounds so familiar to what she was talking about with encoding resilience. It it reminds me of that that ranger training that you went through. Of your you were being taught, here's how to be resilient. And everything in that camp was leading you towards being able to do the right thing, even when everything in your body is screaming to do something different. Do you feel like that's what what Ranger training was doing and coding resilience in in your brain and body? Well, get this. For weeks on end, we got one to two hours of sleep a night. For weeks on end, we got two thirds of what we would normally eat during a day. For weeks, Uh weeks on end, we would together walk in all weather. 10 miles a day with a heavy load on our back. And we, we, we could not make a mistake. And, and we had to be there for one another. Now, we learned that it was the most miserable physical experience of my life. Mm-hmm. And I almost didn't graduate. I was, def- <laughs> I was definitely not the honor graduate, but I think yeah. most people almost don't graduate. Most people mm-hmm. barely graduate. Yeah. Yeah. But I learned that I could do it with my ranger buddy with me. And it would be one step at a time. I mean, how many more mountains do we have to climb? How much more rain can we endure? And we're going to lay down tonight in a patrol base on the ground in the rain and try to get some sleep. Mm. Now, this was the 58 days, the worst, hardest 58 days of my life. Yeah. But, 
but it taught me that I could do far more than I thought I could do. And I could do it together with my ranger buddies. Jim, why do you think that ranger camp is so effective? Well, it has a number of features. One is it it makes you have to stretch the limits of how much uh, discomfort signals run through your head. Mm. And so you, you realize after a while, I actually can handle more intensity than I ever thought I could. Um, mm-hmm. And it also uh, has the sense that although the thing in front of me uh, might be the enemy or uh, challenge or painful or difficult, uh, I have somebody with me. I have a, a like a rescue attachment. I've got. I can stay connected to this person when I can't stay connected to what's in front of me. And so having that that sense that there's someone with me that's I have to see that make sure they get through this just like they're going to make sure that I get through this. But my attachment is always the strongest part of the brain. So if we can enlist mm. the our attachment center to say because of my love, uh, that's not what they would call it if you're a ranger. But uh, <laughs> you know, so we'll, uh-huh. you know, this attachment to the person, the valuing of their life, uh, is so great that mm. I can push my brain to do all sorts of things I might not have done or wanted to do otherwise. And, and to do this day after day says, you know, this can be a way of life. It's not just, Oh, we lucked out. And after three minutes, you know, it was all over. Thank goodness. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, oh, this, we can live this way. This is the kind of people we are. Uh, and this is what we value. And so that's why the community again comes in and says, you know, you might be looking at somebody that feels like an enemy. They might even want to be your enemy, but because you're connected with us and we're the kinds of people that face this, we actually, uh, you know, track down, we engage the people who feel like our enemies in the mm-hmm. military. We engage them in order to disable them. But mm-hmm. in uh, the Christian life, we engage them in order to help them out of being enemies. So they no longer have to be that way with us. But it's the same process, and it feels just about as scary. But for the relationships we have, uh, the rescue attachments that say, you know, whenever I forget, you'll remind me, won't you? And we'll do this for each other. And it just makes me wonder, too. I You hear a lot about in book publishing, like the topic of personal growth. It. And as you're talking, it feels a bit like that is a, a misnomer of is there is there such a thing as purely personal growth or do you need other people to grow along with you? How far can you take yourself by yourself in real growth? Well, personal growth is what the first 13 years of life are about. And, you know, once you're past 14, uh, we actually need our identity group because we're trying to grow a group that is going to survive us. And so, yeah, personal growth will get you up to the maturity of about a 12, 13-year-old. <laughs> but if we want to be adults and we want to be parents and we want to be elders and we want to be leaders of community, yeah. you really need to have a community in order to learn how to do this together. That is such a challenge, uh, but an encouragement as well. Um, I think there's there's a lot of people that want to grow, and I think it's just a really good reminder that you can't do it by yourself, that the mature growth happens in community with people that can be mentors and guides for you and also people that bug the snot out of you, that those are all helpful <laughs> things in learning how to grow. 
and community can be really messy, but that's also the place where, where the growth really happens. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, if we're going to actually learn to get out of enemy mode, we're going to have to practice this as a community uh, because mm-hmm. we need those additional people to come around us at those times when we just don't feel like it uh, <laughs> or we don't see how it could be possible or we're just too tired to want to try it one more time. Uh, and because, you know, we'll do it together. Uh, these these are the ways that we uh, re-engage when we're too tired and we're in simple enemy mode. These are the ways that mm-hmm. we quiet together when we're in stupid enemy mode. And these are the ways we learn to have compassion for people who we would just as soon uh, beat up uh, in one way or another in, in intelligent <laughs> enemy mode and get rid of. Uh-huh. It's like that scene in The Lion King when Simba has given up on being king and he's living far away and Rafiki comes to him and says, you don't even know who you are. Mm. He was calling him back to his true identity. Yeah. And, and that's, we need that. We all need that. Yeah. That's what community does for us. It reminds us who, who we were created to be, who we can be uh, as uh, people in a group. I think that's a great place for us to wrap up this episode. And this is actually where we are going to be wrapping up the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast. Just want to extend a huge thank you to you, Jim and Ray, and to all of the guests who have come on with us. Um, It's been such a pleasure to get their experience and their wisdom as we are all on this journey together um, to figure out how we can return to our best selves when we've been in enemy mode. If you are interested in learning more about this. You can pick up the book by Jim and Ray, Escaping Enemy Mode. Um, and that's available at Moody Publishers or wherever you buy books. And you can also visit the website, escapingenemymode.com, where there's all kinds of information on how to better understand this feature of who we are and how we can be our best selves. So extending a, a big thank you to all of you who are listening for joining us on this journey as we escape enemy mode, and we wish you the best in your journey as well. You've been listening to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast. To learn more about the book by Dr. Jim Wilder and Ray Woolridge, visit escapingenemymode.com.